and in three, two, one. Folks, we have achieved podcasting. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our very first episode. I'm very excited to be here. I have been planning this for months and grateful to everyone joining me on this journey, everyone who has supported me so far, and I guess we may as well get started. So I thought we'd just sort of get our toes wet today, not get into anything too heavy, but just kind of get ourselves settled and explain what exactly we're doing here, since this is the very first episode of a brand new podcast. Jumping right in with the basics, Highbrow Honey is going to be a bi-weekly release. So starting this Sunday, the 17th, with this here episode drop, you can expect a new one every other Sunday. We're going to be making our way on this podcast through today's ever-expanding visual culture by focusing on key moments in the art historical subject. The weird, the infamous, the hilarious, and even the confusing. We're going to be breaking down the visual past to understand its connections to the present. And this is essentially my attempt to bring you all the quote-unquote highbrow knowledge that I can in episodes of about 30 minutes. A couple other things of note is that I am a planner, but I am also flexible, so there's going to be evolutions and developments on this podcast of this podcast to come as we grow through the end of the year here and hopefully far beyond and because we are our historians here we are proper we cite our sources so you can check the weekly show notes for the complete source list per topic aka per episode With all of that technical stuff out of the way, I thought it'd be important to introduce myself quickly, cover my credentials, and why I am hosting this podcast, slash producing, slash creating, slash social media marketing. So if anything seems a little bit rushed, it's because I'm trying to do it all. Please give me some grace. I recently earned my master's in art history, specializing in contemporary arts from Arizona State University just this May. My thesis is available to find under the title Painful Pleasure, New Hysteria as a Feminist Strategy of Contemporary Figural Artworks. And in that 50 pages, I attempted essentially to make comparisons of the approaches of Juno Calypso, Christina Quarles, and Lisa Yuskovich to contemporary artistic feminist theories and dilemmas and paid a special attention to overlaps in their subconsciously influenced practices and their reinterpretations of feminine performances and reactions of women characters to the expectations of said performances. I additionally have bachelors of arts in both art history as well as arts management, aka business, but for arts-based ones, from Miami University as of May 2016, and most importantly, the primary goal of this podcast. I really want to try to inspire as much as I can the same love of learning, especially about art history in my listeners here that my professors and mentors over the years have inspired in me 
to make art history accessible, fun, and popular. Now, the reason that is so important to me is not like, you know, haha funny, but more irony of life funny. Because if you had asked me even 10 years ago if I ever saw myself working in any sort of creative field, I would have probably laughed in your face. And then I went to a liberal arts school, and it was a necessary credit to either take an introductory hands-on you know painting level one course type deal or you could do an art history introductory course you can guess which way i went of course i had relatively low expectations for these art history classes i truly didn't think that i was going to enjoy them because i expected it to just be memorizing dates and characteristics of movements and such and there is some of that but there is so much more focus on the socio-historical context of the production of the artworks especially as they affected individual well-known masterpieces produced in any given time frame i eventually got my masters in the subject and now here we are that gives us a perfect segue into the core of this podcast, which is why art history matters. I think that there's a common misunderstanding about what art history actually is and what art historians truly do, what we study. And I want to clarify that. Not all of us are simply breaking down symbolism from paintings created in the 1500s, for example. Not all of us are trying to piece together four of the five point of views that Picasso was taking in any one of his given works. We are, however, all focused on art history because it is a fascinating visual record of socio-political and cultural historical changes and dialogues across time and place. Now what I mean by that term dialogue is that in every instance of art, regardless of medium, that has ever been created, that piece exists as some form of commentary. It can be directly against a political body. It could refer to a social ailment or an inequality. It could refer to even the way that an artist moves about their society and feels in that society, which can tell us a lot about even that context's effects on a given individual. It may not be even an intentional conversation. An artist may simply be in exploring an idea through a work of art. However, when it goes out into the world, it inherently inspires responses from what its viewers believe is the message of that piece of art. So then that too comes out into the world through the press, through social media, through any number of means. And so then this conversation, whether or not it is being actively participated in by both sides, 
exists in the world across every society that has ever produced art you see this happen and it is in fact a dialogue and it is in my opinion by far the coolest one i think it's getting pretty obvious now why i started this podcast but Obviously, I am passionate about it. Obviously, I am an art historian and thus have an aim to create as well as to educate. But I am also something of a creative professional, hoping to expand her skills and boundaries here. Now, I have gotten asked before what exactly I mean by that term, creative professional. So the shortest answer I can give is that it means that I generate project ideas. I participate in the project, I facilitate it, I organize temporally, situationally, with materials, so on and so forth, but I don't necessarily have the artistic skills to carry out some of the details of the project myself. So I will pair up with artists that I know in order to bring these ideas to life. So with no further ado, let's get our toes wet. Let's begin. I'd like us to start easy with one of the first exercises that I ever had to do in one of my very first art history classes of all times. It only takes about 20 seconds, but I would like you for that 20 seconds to stop whatever else you're doing and devote at least 80% of your attention to this exercise because you do need to visualize a little bit here. This is, of course, a rhetorical question, but give it some thought. What is art? Come up with a few bullet points definition, what you think something needs to have, the characteristics that make something a work of art. And when you've got a handle on that list, go look around your room or go into your pantry and grab either an item with a label on it or flip open to a magazine page if you have one of those nearby. Essentially, look at something that required an element of design. Now, looking at this other object that includes elements of design, think hard about how much it really has in common with whatever work of art you may have pictured. For example, do they share similar color schemes or the presence of a color scheme? Do they share an emphasis on naturalistic, rounded forms or more formal, geometric ones? Think about the presence or absence of text and how that contributes to your understanding of that image. When you really break it down, there's not so big a difference between high and low brow art after all, aside from the price tags assigned to it, and whether or not it's associated with the marketing of a specific product. Obviously, that's something of a critical thinking exercise. In order to get you 
considering what defines art in your mind, what you describe as highbrow, lowbrow, and why. It is also, though, meant to get you in the habit of thinking critically, of visually analyzing things, and really looking out for what your opinion is instead of just taking at face value something that you might be hearing or reading in this, you know, day and age. <laughs> now, because we are aiming to keep things light and easy here in this first episode, I thought a good place to start, a fun place to start, would be somewhere that I might be just a little bit controversial for, at least in terms of phrasing. We're going to debunk the movements. I want to start here because I think that in a lot of ways, people assume that art history just is the movements and that it's all about memorizing those specific things. However, the movements more so provide a sort of chapter outline to this very, very disorganized and overlapping record. So bear with us as we talk a little bit more about why they are flawed and why they are useful. The first and most important thing to know is that the dates associated with any movement are not actually concrete. They're more like an outline of when that style, aka a group of defined unique characteristics, was popular was omnipresent across mediums. By that same token, these are not hard definitions. The characteristics associated with a movement might not describe every single artwork, but they do describe repeated or concentrated and distinguishable characteristics seen across mediums within a specific period of time. Despite their kind of inaccuracy, they are good means of pointing to a specific time frame within the art historical record just for quick reference. One example of an instance where this general reference comes in handy is the case of Gothic architecture, which was reigning from about 1150-ish to as long as 1450-ish, depending on exactly what region you're talking about. Now, Gothic architecture is was made possible by advances in structural engineering at the time, including the development of rib systems and of pointed rather than rounded arches, which better allowed architects of the day to create some necessary shape changes but also allowed them the opportunity to build bigger and on more complicated footprints. You will recognize the rib systems in a Gothic church as narrow stretches of brick or block going upwards from the pillars all the way across the ceiling, typically in diagonal shapes, and which distend downwards into the interior space of the cathedral. Gothic is a very well-known style, but in case you're unfamiliar, some key tell points include flying buttresses, which look like 
uneven arches attaching shorter pillars to the tall central part of the building, an emphasis on rich decorations, rose windows, and some famous examples for reference include the Sartre's Cathedral in France and the Wells Cathedral in England. Of course, there is an exception to every rule, and in the case of hard dates, that would be the style of Rococo, which existed from 1700 to 1780, and that 1780 is a concrete date because it marked the beginning of the French Revolution. So thank you, France, for proving me wrong. The Rococo style is well known for its emphasis on the frilly, on fine clothes, ornamentation, and wealth, very intricate detail, and its deep sense of theatricality, drama, and its attempts to kind of drive titillation with its very flirtatious stories. Everything about it suggests the wealth and, um, let's say, fecundity of the upper class because the purpose of these works was to entertain the upper class and for, to celebrate their own lifestyle. This self-celebration and emphasis on luxury really reflected the extreme wealth disparity of French society at the time, as well as the ignorance of the upper classes about the lower classes sentiments just before the French Revolution. Although we now know that Marie Antoinette never actually said, let them eat cake, Rococo was definitely a visual equivalent, and the people noticed. Some internationally known examples of this style include The Swing, completed by Fragonard in 1768, and The Blue Boy by Gainsborough in 1770. Funnily enough, a lot of the artistic movements had a motivation that were something like emotine reactions to the previous movement. Something of a, I'm not you, dad, and I never will be response of trying to do exactly the opposite of whatever was just done before. One example of this can be found in the transitions between Romanticism, Neoclassicism, and Realism. The Romantic movement existed from about the 1780s through nearly the 1830s, and its focus was on challenging the rationality ideals of the Enlightenment. It really emphasized nature, emotion, and sense as equally important methods of understanding the world as logic and order. Some really well-known works from this period include Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog by Friedrich in 1818, as well as Liberty Leading the People, subtitled July 28, 1830, completed by Delacroix in that year of 1830. Romanticism, though, was reacting almost in real time to neoclassicism, which was going on from the 1750s through about the 1850s, and whose focus was on mirroring and using the standards of Roman and Greek styles. So neoclassicism is very geometric, simple, and formal. It's the style of many U.S. capital and bank buildings, so the most Recognizable examples actually include the Hall of Congress and the Lincoln Memorial. 
So you have these almost opposites of logic and order and sense and emotion, one coming right after the other and as a reaction to it. And then comes realism in the 1840s and lasting until about the 1880s. And its focus was breaking with all pre-industrial and pre-enlightenment pictorial methods, as well as subjects. It was focused on displaying real life events and people as they are with the same weight as the grand portraits of lords, kings, etc. of the past. This is where realism differs from romanticism is because these common everyday figures were not idealized or made into literary or historical heroic references. Oftentimes these works were quite controversial on their release for this reason, but are well known today. And some examples include The Gleaners by Millette in 1857 and the infamous Olympia by Manet in 1863. So there are three things that you might not have known about the movements, that they are kind of fluid, kind of loosely defined, and definitely resemble each human advancement as driven by rebelliousness. We love them for that. Oh my goodness, we're already halfway through. This has been quite something. Thank you for putting up with me for 23 whole minutes already. I appreciate you guys. And considering that we have a little bit more time, let's do a little vocab. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize this. This is just me telling you some things so that when I talk about art historical details in the future, you know why I'm using the terminology that I am. So taking advantage of the fact that we just talked about the realism movement, I think it's going to be pretty obvious when I say I tend to refer to things that appear how it would to the naked eye in nature and art as naturalistic instead of realistic. Natural brings forth that sort of unblocked or uninterpreted by the artist's eye fact of how it would truly be. Whereas realism definitely implies some sort of stylistic changing on behalf of the artist. So even if I'm talking about a naturalistic sky, I mean one that is not probably fluorescent pink. Another one we can talk through that's especially short and sweet because I think actually TikTok and some other visual social medias have been pretty good at providing and categorizing examples of both modern and contemporary styles. However, even though most people kind of get this one now, some verbal outliers remain. You know, modern world, modern technology modern family. And what's important about this difference is that modern really does refer to modernism as a movement, which was composed of everything from cubism up to and including abstract art in the 60s. And it was based on the perceived values of the quote-unquote 
modern post-industrial life. So the connotations of it are really what matters here. Modern implies that the form follows the function, that industrial materials are used, that there is innovation and experimentation with form going on. More importantly, modernism is associated with a philosophy of abandoning traditional issues of morality in the work and arose as a reaction to and means of understanding the evolving context of the first half of the 21st century. Obviously, we are no longer there. And so these verbal outliers really put us in a kind of temporal confusion that I think we can do better at avoiding just by applying what we know about the visual style and how to describe it into our contemporary language. And speaking of, contemporary for art historians generally refers to art produced in the last 50 years or so. For me, as a specialist, I prefer the last 30 years or so. And most importantly, contemporary art is separate from modern in that it doesn't always follow those rules or philosophies. And finally, to close out our first episode here, I thought I would uh, drop a little something for the fans of Bridgerton. Yes, I know, but we're doing it. Season 1, Episode 3, when the Duke and Daphne are touching fingers while staring at art. First of all, goals. Oh my goodness. If a man were pulling such gentle, subtle, romantic moves on me in in front of art, I, I mean, wow. Just wow. But we're not here for thirst traps, so I would like to redirect our attention to the scene just before that where Benedict essentially embarrasses himself by talking smack to the artist of a painting not knowing that that man was the artist and mostly directing his commentary towards his good friend, Lady Danbury. Now, at one point, they essentially say that the artwork is so bad that it should have been, quote unquote, skied. And I really appreciate this scene being in the series because it actually does refer to something quite significant in the history of art. So let's break it down. We have to pay attention to the context that they are in, which is, of course, a salon-style presentation, meaning that every inch of the walls of the display hall are packed with artworks that have been selected by some sort of jury, often the National Arts Academy, for display, and they're hung this way in order to maximize the amount of paintings that they can possibly get up in this space. Salons were occurring really across Europe throughout the 19th century, but the most well-known did happen in France. So of course there's already step one of competition where you have to pass this jury board in order for your work to be hung on the walls at all. However, there was something of a step two. Even though none of these works had individual information like the titles readily available posted on the wall next to the work, for example, the works that were placed towards the top of these, you know, 15, 20 foot walls 
we're far less likely to be seen than ones placed at eye level. And of course, the exhibition designers knew this. So works that were considered to be bad, controversial, boring, etc., were sent up there to the top of these walls in the salon as a sort of professional snub or dismissal from that jury board. The placement indicated a bad critical review from that hosting academy, and it was considered a big professional slap in the face to get sky because it meant that the jury thought you could have done better it was like they were telling you your work was only okay what was fascinating about this practice is that someone could go from being a jury darling one year to getting skied the next or rejected outright and some famous artists did have this happen to them. Some examples include Manet, Corbett, Cezanne, and Gainsborough was skied so many times that he refused to participate in salons again after 1863. Whew, okay, we did it. We made it through the first episode. All right, awesome. I think I have given your brains enough to download for the day, enough to think about in terms of getting you excited for art history and what's to come here on Highbrow Honey. So we're going to go ahead and close it out for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at highbrow underscore honey. Go ahead and follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your streaming done. And I will see y'all in October with some on-theme content. Bye.